And now I'll introduce our special guest. Welcome to the 19th presentation of the Canadian Club of Toronto's Canadian of the Year Award. I doubt there is a higher honour than being acknowledged for doing something that helps improve life for the people of your home community and country. Especially when you're recognised as being a transformative agent, someone with the skill, the vision and that so precise sense of timing to help a nation grow and change in a profound and positive ways. This year's choice for the Canadian of the Year has done all of that. As Chief Justice of Canada, the Right Honourable Beverly McLaughlin has been a trailblazer in Canadian law reform for 10 years now. She has been a thoughtful and principled decision maker, a champion of fairness and respect for every individual. But just as importantly, her legal interpretations and guidance of the justice system, flanked of course by her fellow members of the Supreme Court, has helped Canada in progress and become a better place to live and to work, and its citizens more responsible about how, the, how we direct the evolution of our society. A judge of the Supreme Court of Canada since 1989, I think Madam Chief Justice would agree that even back then she knew her way around the justice system. From a judge in county court in Vancouver, Ms. McLaughlin moved into provincial law and had reached the office of Chief Justice of British Columbia Supreme Court when the call came from Ottawa. Throughout her career, at every level of office, she has advocated for proper representation, access and engagement, especially as it pertained to women, their rights, and their representation and their issues. I'm sure Madam Chief Justice remembers Canada as being a different kind of place than it is today. A time when the country needed to change and to grow, and she wanted to help it become all it could be. For her outstanding work and lifetime contributions in getting us this far, we are honored to declare Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin to be 2010 Canada of the Year, Canadian of the Year. Please welcome Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin. Well, thank you for those kind comments. Thank you all for coming. Um, it's a great uh, honor for me to see so many people who would take the time out of their busy schedules to be here with us today. Uh, you do me honor in coming. I thank you. I am deeply honored and humbled at the receipt of this citation. Je suis profondément honoré de recevoir cette distinction que j'accepte avec un sentiment d'humilité. This is not something I could have dreamed would happen to me. Forgive me if I sound like I'm at the Oscars. I believe I should now go on and thank my mother, father, siblings, spouses, children, and all those whose names I can't remember. The truth is that I do have a lot to thank many for, more of which later. But the organizers suggested, indeed made a very strong suggestion, that I talk about myself. I have to admit that I found the request somewhat discomforting because people don't usually want to hear me talk about myself. They're much more interested in the latest decision of the Supreme Court of Canada or something similarly important. 
I'm reminded of a famous uh, justice of the Supreme Court of Canada who a few decades ago was approached by publishers to and they asked whether he'd like to write his autobiography. The justice requested a few days to think it over. And when the days were up, he met with them again. And he said, the answer is no. And they said, why? He said, living it once was bad enough. <laughs> <clears throat> I've not found living my life bad. In fact, it has overall been a wonderful ride. Vivre ma vie ne m'a pas semblé difficile. En fait, ça aurait été comme tout un merveilleux voyage. By long habit, I am trained to look forward, not back. Yet having made the effort at a retrospective perspective, I must admit I am grateful to the Canadian Club of Toronto for provoking me to do so. As most of you know, I was born, not in Toronto, but at a far, point far distant. A tiny town, Pincher Creek, at that point population 1700, got to 2000 before I left, a town tucked in the southwest corner of Alberta, in the depths of World War II, the first child of Ernest Gates and Eleanor Cruchel. My father was a man who dreamed of being a minister, but who spent his life doing a little farming, a little ranching, and running a modern, modest rather, lumber business. My mother was vivacious and voracious for big words, big books, and people. I grew up feeling enormously privileged, grateful for loving parents, for books, and for the simple joy of being in such a beautiful part of the world with the Rockies at our back door. Yet life was not easy. Beneath the tranquil routine of rural life ran the bay mall of worries about the price of beef or the market for lumber. It was a family business, and as was the way in such a business, everyone was expected to do their part. While I remember some early summers with little to do but play and read, as we grew older, it seemed we mostly worked. It developed character, as they used to say. As for my two brothers and I, it fostered a determination to go to university and find an easier way to get by. <laughs> People sometimes ask me, when I decided to become Chief Justice, were you five, they say, maybe seven? Well, the answer I have to say is never. It's just the way things worked out. I could not have dreamed in my youth of becoming a lawyer, much less a judge, much less Chief Justice. In my world, women were housewives, nurses, teachers, secretaries, once in a while, a nun. A lawyer? Impossible. My ineptitude for any useful career was confirmed by my grade eight aptitude testing. When the results came back, the teacher took me aside. Her brow furrowed with concern, and I knew something was wrong. My prospects, she gently explained, were rather dim. Teaching was the only possibility, although there were some impediments there too. Everything else was very dubious. She concluded with a stern rejoinder, no doubt motivated by a concern for public safety due to what she said was the lowest alertness score she had ever seen. <laughs> Two things, she told me, you must never be. I waited breathlessly. 
a waitress, or a telephone operator. <laughs> True story. Well, I was 13 and the future looked bleak. <clears throat> so for want of a better plan, I fell into a pleasant limbo of pursuing what I enjoyed. Books, music, a little painting, more books. When time came, I cobbled together a package of scholarships. Without such help, I would never have got to university and enrolled at the University of Alberta, where I spent four glorious years exploring ideas via philosophy major, embroidered liberally with courses in literature and language. Reality, of course, has a way of closing in, and it started to close in on me. I could not keep getting those scholarships forever. I could not be a student forever. At some point, I would have to face the question I'd been avoiding since that grade eight aptitude test. What would I be? Back home on the ranch for the summer, I took the step that changed my life, although I did not know it at the time. I sent a letter to the University of Alberta Law School asking for information on law studies. Those were simpler times. The Dean Wilbur Bowker wrote back with two words, you're accepted. <laughs> so when September came and I was still dithering about what to do, I thought, well, why not give it a try? I had in mind a week or so. It lasted a lifetime. What followed you already know. Lawyer, professor, judge, 29 years as a judge as of April 22, 2010, which astounds even me. Along the way, I married, had a son, lost a husband to cancer, and married again to Frank, who as always is here for me today. I've known sorrow, and I've known great joy. Through it all, the law has kept me steady, the anchor at the end of my lifeline. When I discovered law back in that Edmonton classroom in 1965, I discovered more than an intellectual discipline, more than a way of making a living. I discovered a way of interacting with the women and men around me and with my country, Canada. J'ai découvert une façon d'interagir avec les femmes et les hommes qui m'entouraient et avec mon pays, le Canada. About the time I was getting started in law, a young justice minister proclaimed a vision for Canada that resonated not just with me, but with Canadians at the time from coast to coast. The young justice minister was Pierre Elliott Trudeau. The vision was stated in three plain words, the just society. I bought into that vision and it has nourished me ever since. It is a grand idea an idea that transcends our regional identities and unites us all in a Canadian enterprise, the quest for a truly just society. And it is an idea that has become the Canadian brand, not only here, but abroad. When people of other countries think of Canada, they think of a decent land where rule of law preserves stability and where people whatever their race or gender or background can get a fair shake. They think of rights, human rights, and the importance of doing the right thing. They think in a word of a just society. It is a fine reputation 
and one we must never betray. The ideal of a just society finds many expressions from the Constitutional Declaration of our 1982 Charter of Rights and Freedoms, Trudeau's dream and the nation's flagship achievement in justice, to the rights we extend to every new Canadian who joins us, the rights to be a citizen of equal stature with everyone else, however humble that person, however much in need. But all the varied expressions of the just society rest on a single premise, the individual worth of every man, woman, and child, an idea summed up in the phrase human dignity. Le terme dignité humaine, chaque personne a ses droits, chaque personne compte. Each person is entitled, each person counts. Not only do we as Canadians seek justice, I believe we insist on justice. You just have to look at the headlines of our newspapers to see that. When our institutions fall short, as inevitably they occasionally do, we protest and hold them to account. I am proud of that. The just society is more than anything else what defines us as Canadians. Yet, as much as we cherish the Just Society, we have learned that it's not a free ride. In fact, we've learned it's hard work. If we want respect for ourselves, we must respect others. If we want our rights to be appreciated, we must accept they come with responsibilities. When we are confronted with difficult decisions, we must ask ourselves, not only what serves our short-term interests, but what is just. Two particular challenges face us today in our quest for the ju just society. The first is access to justice, and the second is accommodation of difference. Access to justice means that every woman, man, and child, not just the rich, but everyone, can effectively avail themselves of the right to justice and the protections offered by our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It means affordable court processes and effective settlement procedures. It means recognizing the wrongs of the past and trying to right them, as we are doing now in offering apologies and compensation to Aboriginal men and women who as children were forced into residential schools where too often they suffered abuse. Justice delayed, justice imperfect perhaps, but in the end, justice has not been denied. The accommodation of difference is a different sort of challenge. Un autre type de défi qui se pose sur le plan de la justice. The issue is not access to courts or redress for long buried grievances here. Il ne s'agit pas, dans ce cas, de l'accès aux tribunaux ou de la réparation d'injustes anciennes. The issue is rather how we, as individual members of society, respond to the other in our midst, to those of different race, different religion, different dress. Will we do so with generosity and the full measure of respect that justice requires? Will we, in a word, accommodate difference as we have done in the past? Or will we set our face against difference and in so doing set Canadian against Canadian? 
Canadian society is ever more diverse and multicultural. How we answer these questions will determine whether we maintain our ideal of the just society or lose it. Last week, flicking through the TV channels, something I must admit I don't do very often, I found myself halting at the story of a new Canadian. He had come from the Congo, having lost his entire family to the violence and strife that has racked that country of late. On the day in question, he had become a Canadian citizen. What does it mean to you, the interviewer asked. With tears in his eyes, the man said simply this, in Canada, I am treated as a human being, a person with dignity and rights. He understood this new Canadian, the profound value of a just society. I believe that no dream is more worthy, no reality more important than the just society. I have had the good fortune to be part of this dream and this reality. I am certain that I have missed opportunities, taken false steps. But it is my hope that along the way I have made some small contribution to the dream of a just society that unites us as Canadians, rich or poor, east, west, or north. In life, there is nothing more gratifying than being privileged to work for what you believe in. And I, I am immensely grateful to my country, Canada, for having offered me that opportunity and against all the odds. I was born female to ordinary parents of neither rank nor wealth. In most countries of the world, that would have been the beginning and end of my story. Mine would likely have been a short life of little consequence. Instead, and with some measure of disbelief, I am standing before you today as your choice for Canadian of the Year. That this could happen to me is a testament to the generous spirit of those who have helped me, from my simple beginnings in rural southern Alberta to the platform on which I now stand. Most profoundly, it is a testament to the great country of Canada and the just society it has become. From the bottom of my heart, I thank you. Du fond de coeur, je vous remercie. I'd like to ask Nick Chambers, uh, the Chair of the Canadian of the Year Award, to the podium, please. Madam Chief Justice and guests, this, is, this award is something that we at the Canadian Club of Toronto take very seriously. Each year, we subject a list of well-qualified nominees to a rigorous selection process. By the end of the process, we are left with the name of a Canadian, or occasionally a group of Canadians, who has most clearly made a positive, lasting impact on the lives of Canadians and the fate of Canada. 
Past recipients include champions of human rights, accomplished entrepreneurs, and pioneers of the arts. It gives us great pleasure to add Canada's longest standing Chief Justice and one of its most accomplished to our list of Canadians of the Year. I would like to ask John Capabianco, President of the Canadian Club of Toronto, and Jamie Watt, Director of the Canadian Club of Toronto, to help me present this year's award. And folks, I'm sure by now you figured out that the Canadian Club of Toronto's Canadian of the Year for 2010 is the Right Honourable <laughs> Beverly McLaughlin. Now I'd like to ask Jamie Watt to uh, come to the podium. Uh, Chief Justice, uh, Madam Clarkson, ladies and gentlemen, it's uh, customary to thank our luncheon speaker for her remarks. And so, Chief Justice, on behalf of us all, thank you once again for providing a thoughtful and actually very entertaining address. But today I'd like to break a bit from that convention. I'd like to thank the Chief Justice not just for her remarks, but for her lifelong contribution to Canada. You know, it's said that after one's love, the greatest gift one can give is one's labor. And what a gift Beverly McLaughlin's gift has been. As Canadians, we have a particular habit of searching for definitions of ourselves. Some might even go so far as to call it a national obsession. What it means to be a Canadian has been considered in countless writings by slam poets at Olympic ceremonies and national film board, those proverbial national film board vignettes, and yes, even in, in beer commercials. <laughs> Beverly McLaughlin, however, has answered this question with her life, and what a compliment it's been to us all. When speaking to us, speaking to this club seven years ago, the Chief Justice spoke of democracy and the question of how judges should be appointed. Here's what she said. To me, the sole concern should be to appoint individuals who embody the most valuable judicial qualities of impartiality, empathy, and wisdom. And in her spectacular career, she has done just that. The very best of Canada, holding fast to these principles of impartiality, wisdom, and empathy, championing individual rights and human rights, defending the Constitution, free speech, and democracy itself, and understanding that the lives of ordinary Canadians are profoundly affected, not just by the court's individual decisions, but by whether there is access to justice and to a fair justice system. Her court is known for its openness, mutual respect, and indeed, empathy. So we thank you for showing us what it means to be a Canadian, for demonstrating by achievement what Canada at its very best can be. Juge en chef au nom de tous les Canadiens à travers le Canada, je dis simplement merci. Merci pour tout une vie de service. For your remarks and your distinguished contribution to Canada, Chief Justice, we thank you.
thank you, Jamie, and thank you, Nick, and thank you, Chief Justice, once more. And I'd also like to thank Borden Landers Gervais for making today possible. This concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We are grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian Club events. This meeting is now adjourned. Thank you very much and have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you.